Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Today, 215 million Christians around the world are persecuted. Hey, I see, I love having a cold because it gives me that really deep, rich, resonant voice. It almost sounds unreal to me. So. No, pretty sure not. As we, uh, as we come to these verses, I just want to do a little bit of review into what we've seen so far in the book of Hebrews. I want to do that because uh, we are, once we get into chapter 5, we're going to see the direction expand a little bit and shift a, a little bit. And we're coming, this is really the close of the first warning section, the first caution section of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, uh, and then into chapter, into chapter 3, gives us a really clear picture of the superiority of Jesus Christ, of his surpassing glory, his surpassing greatness and ministry. And then Hebrews 3, around verse 7, through the middle of chapter 4, toward the end of chapter 4, verse 13, contains a, a serious caution not to reject Christ, not to simply come partway as the, the Jews did in the wilderness, but to come all the way through. Now, the, the truth is none of us like to be challenged. None of us like to be rebuked. The book of Hebrews has a lot of challenges and rebukes. Uh, we've seen things already like how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation and do not harden your hearts and let us fear if any one of you seems to fall short. (coughs) There is no creature hidden from his sight. Those challenges and rebukes are there and they're so strong because the stakes are so high and because the promise of God is so incredibly rich. We've also seen statements like, by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Through his death, he rendered the devil powerless. He is a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. We have become partakers of Christ if we continue in our faith. So the the need to continue is extraordinary. Now, for the sake of full disclosure, I can understand if some of you feel like the picture being presented here is that Jesus is standing above us with a club, and the minute we step out of line, he is ready to clobber us and smack us down. That's not the case. It's that salvation is such a crucial thing. For those who are truly devoted to the Lord, who are truly in Christ, whose whose faith is consistent and their lives reflect the, the, the conversion that comes when we are born again, this book is meant to be an encouragement and a a strengthening. For those who are clearly unbelievers, very happy as pagans, very content as pagans, so common in the church to say, there's no way unbelievers can be truly happy. That's not true. Many of them are really genuinely just delighted with life. They're utterly clueless about what is to come. And they're really not the focus of this letter. But there are those within the church whose faith wavers and whose life doesn't reflect conversion. It doesn't reflect being born again. Some of those people are genuine believers who are immature in their faith. 
or who are struggling. They're under persecution or they're, they're struggling with di- disease or disappointment, just with the whole aspect of life. And what Hebrews says is don't give up. Don't fall short. Keep on. Keep your grip in, in Christ. Keep anchored to him. And some of those are unbelievers who are deceived about their own spiritual state. In a sense, they're pretending to be Christians, but I don't think most of them know that they're pretending to be Christians. And the concern here is for those who, who talk about it and who do certain surface things but lack genuine faith and genuine conversion, we should be afraid for them. And so the, the, the exhortations of, of the letter, of the challenges and the rebukes are if you're in that halfway state, if you're in that position where you really can't know, come all the way. Don't fall short. The admonition of chapter 4, verse 1, therefore let us fear, let us be afraid. Not let us be afraid if, if somebody stands up in the middle of a church service and says, I don't believe this, you people are full of hooey and walks out. They've made it clear. He says, let us be afraid if any of you even seem to be coming short. Because once we're done with this life, once our breath exits our body and our heart stops beating and we stand before the Lord, it's too late then to repent. And so the writer writes with great passion. But here in these verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses um, 14, 15, and 16 of Hebrews 4, it's almost like the, the writer, and, and certainly the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit who gave it, said, it's been really heavy. I've been slamming them hard. I've been hitting this issue hard repeatedly. We're told four times in, in, in two chapters, do not harden your hearts. And so he says, let's stop and let's encourage. Let's lift up. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Let's read those verses. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, we ask that as we come to these verses that they would have their purpose in our lives and we would be encouraged, we would be nurtured, we would be comforted, we would be strengthened. Lord, if any are falling short, We trust that you will reveal that in this morning, that you will show them that they lack the hope that you've really given us. And Lord, for those who are struggling and who are truly in you, build them up, strengthen them this morning. (coughs) Jesus, in your holy name we pray, amen. We have two... Let us, statements here, in verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. And in verse 16, let us draw near with confidence. Let us hold fast our confession. Let let us hold fast to faith in Christ. This is where the Israelites in the wilderness failed. They didn't hold fast to faith in Christ. The last verse of of, uh, 
Hebrews chapter 3 says that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It doesn't say they were unable to enter because they were because they were sinners or because they lacked righteousness or because God was eternally angry with them. It's that they wouldn't believe him and he didn't take them in. We're to hold fast to our confession of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Why? Well, he tells us here it's because Jesus is superior to any human priest or minister. I am on my way to starting a cold, or it's the flu shot we had on Friday. Either way, I'm a little drippy in coffee, so. He's unlike the other high priest in terms of his title. We see that he is a great high priest. Uh, the, the phrase high priest is already magnified. You've got priest, and then you have harp, high priest. And so the, the, you've got the, the highness already in there. You've already got the magnification. He doesn't want us to miss the point that Jesus is not just a high priest. He is a great high priest. This is a statement that's only used of the Lord Jesus His high priesthood is magnified over any other. He's unlike the other high priests because of the sanctuary in which he has served and served. Where did the other high priests offer their gifts? They offered them on earth. First in the tabernacle, which Linda calls the portable. And then in the temple in Jerusalem, they offered their sacrifices in man-made structures on man-made altars and a man-made mercy seat. But we, we see in verse 11. No. I'm sorry. Hebrews 9, 11 and 24. Tell us that Jesus entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he now appears in the presence of God for us. I, I love that. He went in and he made an offering for us in the temple in heaven. And now, now, he appears. Romans 8 says, now he is interceding for you. There are, there are views and there are theological systems that say we have to pray to others because Jesus is so busy. That's nonsense. He is not only not too busy for you, he is praying for you himself right now. If you're in him, if your faith is in him, he's lifting you up to the Father right now. Right now. What is he praying for? He's praying that you would get all the way home. He's praying, I think, what we see him pray in John 17. There's not time to look at it today, but it's a wonderful statement of protect them. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the world. I ask that you make them one. That's his job to make us one. It's not our job to make us one. And I ask that you would bring them safely home. He's unlike the other high priest because of his sympathy. Because of his sympathy. He's not a high priest who cannot sympathize, verse 15 says, with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, as we are one who knows our weaknesses intimately. Now people kind of say all the time, you can't understand me unless you've walked in my shoes. You can't understand me unless you understand what I've actually faced. And, and I've had people say, I need another sinner to, to understand me, because only another sinner could understand a sinner like myself. But is that really true? Do you remember the story of 
of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Some of you do. Hannah was the wife of a man named Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was barren. Sometimes when we see those issues, like with Abraham and Sarah, we're not sure if Abraham was the sterile one or if it was Sarah, but Elkanah had children with, with his other wife, and so the issue is Hannah. For, for husbands, sometimes for husbands, infertility is frustrating, but for women, it's often devastating. And Hannah went to the tabernacle. She's living during the time of the judges before the temple. She went to the tabernacle to pray. And she prayed silently, and she grieved deeply, and she prayed weeping bitterly. The high priest was a man named Eli. He saw her moving, or saw her there praying. Her lips were moving, and she wasn't making any sound, but she's very clearly emotional. And he wrongly assumed that she was drunk. And he cruelly rebuked her. Is it really true that a sinner is the only one who can really understand us? No. No. See, we need someone like Jesus. We need someone who has faced the temptations we face, but has never given in to those temptations, so he knows exactly how strong temptation can be. Temptation doesn't get easier the more you resist it. It gets harder the more you resist it. And, and let's be honest, it usually gets harder until we give in. Jesus never gave in, and so he faced a level of temptation and a stress and pressure from temptation we will never know. So he, when, when he says he knows your weaknesses, he knows your weaknesses. So if he rebukes you, you can be sure that you actually do deserve a rebuke. But when he comforts you, you can be sure that he knows exactly what it is you're facing. He never sinned. That didn't make him proud and arrogant like it would us. It, it made him tender and sympathetic. Jesus is unlike the other high priests because of his holiness. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He never sinned. He was holy and righteous every single moment of his life. <coughs> as the Jews interpreted the law regarding the high priest in the Day of Atonement, they decided that the only way to keep the high priest free of defilement was to bring him into the temple several days before the Day of Atonement to cleanse him ritually through sacrifices and then to watch him like a hawk until the Day of Atonement so that they could make sure he didn't sin either deliberately or, frankly, become accidentally defiled under the Old Testament. If you simply walked over a grave, you were defiled. So they watched the high priest like a hawk to make sure that he was fit for his duties on the Day of Atonement. Jesus lived sinlessly his entire life, but those, those three years of ministry that he had, he was under incredibly close, close scrutiny. He called his disciples to him, and then he chose 12 to be with him. And those 12 were rarely away from him. And there's always that outer group of disciples that are kind of coming and going, people like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who, who were there sometimes and not there but still saw him. But what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus' enemies watched him very closely. Mark even says this, Jesus entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They, the Jews, were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. No one has ever lived more publicly 
or more publicly investigated than the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate result of all of this investigation is that at his trial, they had to make up evidence. They had to find false witnesses because he was without sin. So Jesus is unlike any other high priest in his title, his sanctuary, his sympathy, his holiness. And and so we see, therefore, let us draw near. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we think about this, we're really bringing it home. This is really the application, not simply of these, the preceding two verses, but, but of everything in Hebrews to this point. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The natural thing for a sinner to do is to run and hide from their own guilt. If you need proof of that, look at how many failure-to-appear warrants are issued by judges. A failure-to-appear warrant means that somebody refused to face their own guilt. And, and I tried to find out. I couldn't find out, but I suspect that it's, it may be the, the greatest percentage. Kelsey might know. The greatest percentage of warrants, is, warrants issued are probably failure-to-appear. Failed to, to People who say, no, I know that I'm guilty. I don't want to face my guilt. But you see, we are drawing near to a throne of grace. Not a throne of judgment, not a throne of criticism, not a, a throne of exacting righteousness, but a throne of grace. Drawing near isn't drawing near physically. We're not in heaven. God is spirit. Drawing near means drawing near in prayer, immersing ourselves in the word, surrendering our lives to him. And we're to draw near in confidence. The basis of that confidence is not you. It's not your ability. It's not your sinlessness. It's not your righteousness. It's not your devotion. It's Jesus. Jesus is the sinless one. And Jesus has made access for you before the throne of God. So when you come before Jesus in prayer, when you come before the Father in prayer, the Father doesn't look at you and say, what about these issues? The Father looks at his Son and sees you through the lens of his Son, sees you with his Son's righteousness, and says, welcome. This is the place where you belong. We are coming to a throne. And because we are coming to a throne, we ought to be humble and reverent and submitted. And notice we are urged to come to the throne. Let us come. Let us draw near. And so we should be joyful. We should be driven away from God. But instead of being driven away from God, not only are we simply given permission to come to him, we are urged to come to him. We should approach the throne with great expectations because we have been urged to come and because our God can do anything that he pleases. We should come with confidence because the king on the throne has urged us to come to the throne. And in all honesty, any any hesitation is really an accusation against the character of God. It kind of says he's urging us to come to trick us to harm us instead of to bless us. We ought to come with deep sincerity and honesty. We can fool others, but we can't fool him because he sees everything. And seeing everything about who you are today, right now, he urges you to come. You can just take 10 seconds and examine your own heart and examine your conscience. 
some of you might have clean hearts and consciences this morning. Praise God if you do. That's a gift. Some of you definitely do not have clean hearts and consciences. But with that, he says, come. And he urges you to come. And be reminded that it's coming to a throne of grace. (coughs) You say, I don't want to come to a throne of grace. My hands are still dirty with sin. But your sins are forgiven because of that throne of grace. Your faults are forgiven. Even the faults and sins of your prayer are forgiven at the throne of grace. We often pray with dryness. We often labor. We struggle and grasp for the right words. But the throne is not a throne of justice where every idea and syllable you utter has to be exactly right. It's a throne of grace where the faults of our prayers are corrected by the Spirit and made suitable. Because it's a throne of grace, our sins will not keep God from answering. Again, there are whole theologies that say if you come to to the Lord with sin on your heart, with sin on your mind, if you come without purity, God can't answer your prayer. God can do anything he chooses to do. And he gave his son for us so that our sins would not be an obstacle. Because it's a throne of grace, our needs are going to rightly be interpreted. Our Father knows what we need before we ask. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 6. He still knows, knows our needs when we ask. Now, you don't go to a doctor and look him in the eye and say, I need a left radical retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. You go to a doctor and say, I have a pain. And the doctor makes the decision. You come to the Lord Jesus not telling him what your problem is and what you need him to do. You come to the Lord Jesus saying, I have a need. And he says, I know what your need is. It isn't what you think your need is. And I'm going to answer what your need actually is. Because he sees us, remember, open and laid bare before him. No creature is hidden before his sight. That's an advantage. And because it's a throne of grace, we are received with compassion. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon 147 years ago, said this, The petitioner's miseries are compassionated. And and, uh, doing a search to find the exact reference took a while because he liked the word compassionated. It means that God doesn't just feel a passive compassion, but that he treats us compassionately. We are lifted from our shame. We are comforted in our distress. We are embraced when we feel forsaken. We are freed from the threat and the penalty and the power of sin. You have to think about this. We always come with defective knowledge. You never know enough. We always come with insufficient faith. We always come lacking a certain amount of, of fervency. We often come with a measure of pride. We always come having prayed too little in the past. But we come to a throne of grace, not of judgment. And so Spurgeon, in that same sermon, said this, It is a throne set up on purpose, for the dispensation of grace, a throne from which, the, from which every utterance is an utterance of grace. The scepter that is stretched out from it is the silver scepter of grace. The decrees proclaimed from it are the purposes of grace. The gifts that are scattered down its golden steps are gifts of grace, and he that sits upon the throne is grace itself. Now, brothers and sisters, we have, a, we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us draw near with confidence, holding our faith, 
We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So let us draw near with confidence to his throne of grace, because it is there that we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your greatness, <coughs> for the glory of your grace and your graciousness to us. We praise your name that you not only give us an, an invitation to your throne of grace, but urge us to come. We could even say, Lord, you command us to come to receive grace. And we give you thanks for that. We praise you for it. There are people here this morning who are feeling emotionally weak and spiritually weak, and they need your throne of grace. There are others, Lord, feeling physically weak and facing physical uncertainty, and they need your throne of grace. There are those of us here this morning with broken hearts and broken relationships, disappointments in other people and disappointments in ourselves. We need your throne of grace. Lord, there are those who have been afraid to come before you because they're afraid of judgment. They're afraid of condemnation and rebuke. But there is a throne of grace. And those who come to you with the confidence that you offer grace will receive it. Mercy for the sins of the past. Grace to help today and tomorrow. So, Lord, encourage our hearts this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion to recognize that we don't come as as conquerors, we don't come as victors, we come as those who are in need still of your throne of grace. And because of you, we are more than conquerors in you. But only because of you. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.